This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. So the less you sleep, the more you think, the more you're anxious, the more you're anxious, the less you sleep. And that's where, when you have a good control over your sleep, you're able to kind of break that vicious cycle. And that's where, no matter which one came first, if you are able to control your sleep and have good sleep, you'll be in a better place to kind of cope with everything that's going on. Hi, I'm Jamie Boston. I'm the publisher and editor-in-chief of The Tonic Magazine and producer and host of The Tonic Talk Show and Podcast. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll learn about the key strains of probiotics with Dr. Krista McKay, ND. We'll explore the keys to longevity with Jerry Kroll. We'll discuss food and nutrition lingo with Shauna Lindzen. And lastly, we'll find out about the connection between sleep and your mental health with Julian Hayon. But first, a little bit of business. Ever wonder if your probiotics are really working for you? To get their full benefits, probiotics must survive harsh stomach acid and get into your intestines alive. Clinical studies prove that enteric coating guarantees safe intestinal delivery of live, active probiotic cells. New Roots Herbal offers a range of GPS enteric coated probiotics formulated to meet your specific needs. Available exclusively at fine health food stores, find them in the refrigerated section. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Krista McKay graduated from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto in 2009. Prior to that, she completed studies in clinical exercise physiology at Concordia University of Montreal using exercise as a holistic therapy for people with various diseases and disabilities. She's a busy mom balancing practice both in Montreal and Montevideo, Uruguay, and currently works for an employee assistance program doing phone consultations. Welcome back to the show, Krista. How are you? Thanks, Jamie. I'm good. How are you? Good. So, you know, I don't know whether you listen to the show regularly, but, you know, from time to time we do cover probiotics. But this show's a little bit different because we're going to be focusing in on strains of probiotics. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, we're going to jump in deep and get into the details. Okay, so let's start with bifidobacteria. What, yeah. what are they good for in general? So most people have probably heard of lactobacillus and bifidobacteria. The bifido tend to be the ones that colonize the large intestine. So further down in this like non-oxygen type environment, like deep down in the, the uh, <laughs> crypts of the gut, yeah. they digest a lot of dietary fiber and they turn it into short chain fatty acids that are things that make, uh, they can be energy sources for like a growing child or, or we can use some of these. We actually, I think 10% of the short chain fatty acids we're using for energy sources. Wow. Okay. It also protects the barrier. So the intestinal wall, big protection there. And a huge part of the bifidobacteria's function is immune and inflammatory regulation. So modulation, it doesn't 
overly stimulate the immune system, but it helps fight off infections. And then in an autoimmune type of situation, it kind of tells the immune system to chill out and not overreact for things. So uh, we see lots of research in allergies, like IgE is the allergy type immunoglobulin. So the bifido regulate allergies really well. And all of the gut, like colon issues, we're seeing commonly irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel diseases. Bifido are really good here. Wow. I mean, for a foreign entity to do so much in our body, I mean, it's a true symbiotic relationship, right? Like it's, it's kind of mm-hmm. amazing. It's amazing that we haven't sort of taken the bacteria in and it functions as our actual body. Actually kind of shocking. Uh, okay. Yeah. So B. infantis is yep. another strain. Why is it important and, and how does it fit into our lifespan? Yeah. So Bifidobacterium infantis, the infantis part of the name kind of brings us back to infanthood. So uh, when we're born. Yeah. It's actually a, it's a Bifidobacterium longum subspecies infantis. So there's its full name. Okay. And there's other longum. So there's Bifidobacterium longum, you may see, uh, subspecies longum. So we're just kind of shortening it off here. So Bifido infantis, it's a foundational one. So it comes from birth. Breastfed babies are loaded with this bacteria. So really, really important to promote breastfeeding for this reason. It's a super bacteria because it's the only one that can break down all of the oligosaccharides and the undigestible fiber type things that we're getting in breast milk. So it has this amazing advantage over all the other bacteria. It grows a lot more and it also sets the ground for other bifidobacteria, the other families, the cousins, to grow. So in a baby, for example, like preterm babies, they're actually looking at research giving bifidobacterium infantis and they don't just see increases in the bifidobacterium infantis, they see increases in all the other bifido. So it's helping out its brothers and sisters kind of thing to, to colonize the digestive tract. And so I could jump in specifically to like, what this bacteria does. Sure, um, yeah. Like the other bifidos, it produces short-chain fatty acids. Those things are, short-chain fatty acids nourish the cells lining the intestines. They fight off pathogens, so they're they're kind of like antibiotic use. And they're also an energy source for the baby. Another important thing that Infantis does is it kind of like increases proteins that the cells produce to help tighten up the cells between the intestinal cells. So when a baby's born, basically I should go back to that birth, the intestinal wall is not fully formed. There's larger spaces. The gut wall is like this single cell membrane for things to be able to pass through. And a baby has a lot of space between their cells. It hasn't tightened up yet. Everything's kind of loose. So bifido actually signals the cells to start healing, like producing proteins to seal up the gaps, reduce the permeability. So that really, it helps mature the immune system in a really nice way and have healthy development. So that's, that's I think, one of the really important roles of bifido and infantis is this healing up the permeability of the membrane so we can use it as adults when we're talking leaky gut or inflammatory type conditions of the bowel. This bacteria can really kind of heal up the spaces, modulate the immune system. And on top of it, it does, you know, other things like producing folate, major like anti-inflammatory effect. Okay. Let's move on to another strain, and that is L. ruteri. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, perfect. Yeah, lactobacillus ruteri. 
At least that's all how I say it. Okay, um, cool. We'll go with that. Yeah, we'll go with that. So it was actually discovered by a German guy named Reuter, which I'm hoping I'm pronouncing his last name properly. Maybe it's Reuter. But um, yeah, yeah. Reuter, yeah. <laughs> so then that was in the 60s. So this bacteria has been around or known for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's probably one of the most studied. And what I found an interesting association was it's not necessarily the cause or a causative relationship, but there's been a huge decrease in the abundance of lactobacillus ruteri in humans in the past few decades. Hmm. And it's correlated with an increase in inflammatory diseases um, over the same exact period of time. So we're seeing all the itises, like colitis, any of the rheumatoid arthritis, all of the itises have increased. And when you look at a population that's somewhat isolated or hasn't been in contact uh, with a lot of the, you know, Western type world stuff. So they they did research in rural Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. They noticed that there's 50 additional strains of bacteria that we don't have. Um, They're comparing to U.S. subjects like the bacteria there. The in lactobacillus in the New Guinea subjects also there was lactobacillus ruteri found in all of the subjects, but when you look at uh, the U.S. population nowadays, it's actually found in none. It was found in none of the subjects in the research. Huh. Nobody has lactobacillus ruteri. I mean, it's not to say that nobody does, but in this the research, there's doesn't seem to be any. But when Ruter, the German guy, discovered it in the 60s and they started studying this bacteria a lot, it was found very commonly in the digestive tracts of North American subjects. Do you know why that is? Like, why do we not have it? Is it the food we're eating or not eating? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of hypotheses. Diet is a big role. So in rural Papua New Guinea, there's probably a lot more fibers on a regular basis and specific fibers to feed lactobacillus ruteri because the bacteria kind of grow according to what they're fed also. You sure. can upregulate the growth of one. But I think another big part of it is probably sanitation practices. So we've kind of, in my opinion, gone to an extreme with sanitation practices, we're scared of bacteria, we're scared of like infections, but there's a lot of good, you know, in this symbiotic relationship. And medications, we probably use a lot more like antibiotic use medications. So that also could be playing a role in the sort of disappearance of lactobacillus ruteri. So, you know, when you go to the store and you're looking for a, for a probiotic, you know, yeah. you're going to get sort of broad spectrum you know, kinds of products. Should we be focusing on these strains that, you know, you've mentioned or that we have more research on? What's your view on that? Yeah, generally, I would say I'm a recommender of the broad spectrum formulas. Okay. But these two specific ones are kind of superheroes in that they're worth considering. So a lot of people will hear people talk about bifidobacterium infantis or lactobacillus ruteri, and they look for those specific strains, and they're talked about for good reason. So I do recommend those in specific cases, you know, especially intestinal cell wall permeability, like if there's leaky gut symptoms, people who have skin stuff, like inflammation coming out on the skin from leaky gut type issues, so eczema or psoriasis, a generation where breastfeeding was not cool, You know, now it's like everybody promotes breastfeeding. We get all these great bacteria from breast milk, but there was a generation where formula was the way to go. So that population, you know, definitely might benefit from bifidobacterium infantis, moms, preterm babies. You might want to supplement in children and babies bifidobacterium infantis. 
So when we take probiotics, like, you know, billions, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, in a single shot yeah. or a single pill, you're, you're going to get billions of bacteria. Is that going to mess with the, the microflora of our system or is that going to help? So the idea is that we want to mess with it in a good way. Right. Um, but billions sound like a huge number to it does. us. Like it, it does. It just blows your mind because you yeah. can't even grasp the concept or I can't. But in your small intestines, say there's like around 10 to 100 billion bacteria all loaded in your small intestines. So a typical capsule might be 10 to 20 billion. So you're, you're providing an effect there. Most of the bacteria are transient, as in they pass through, they provide some benefit, create some effects, and they, you poop them out. Like they're, yeah. they're going through. Some are colonizers. These two specifically are human strains, the Lactobacillus ruteri and the Bifidobacterium infantis. So there's higher chances of them colonizing. Mm-hmm. But when you look, when you go into the large intestine, for example, it's jam-packed. Like we're talking trillions of bacteria. So a 10 to 20 billion is actually like a micro amount compared to what they're going into. Like they're going into like a deep forest full of bacteria. So you want to go higher numbers there for sure. Okay. So, you know, historically we as humans would get the bacteria through what we ate and how we interacted. So let's sort of focus on the food. You know, I understand, you know, there are sources of foods that, you know, can get you the necessary bacteria, like, like yogurt, for example, like, is, do you advocate for that? Yeah, well, so food, I'm always going to advocate for, for food as a general type of thing. Like it's definitely healthy to eat fermented foods, right. sauerkraut and kimchi and things like that. You'll sure. have like the cabbage that's fermented. You'll have the fibers there. So there's prebiotic to feed it. But the problem is the dosage are lower. So compared to um, a probiotic capsule, it's a way more therapeutic that way. You won't, you're not going to get in the billions. You're, you might get the millions in the food. And the other problem with the food is pasteurization. So the sauerkraut that you buy might be pasteurized. So they fermented the cabbage, they made sauerkraut, and then they pasteurize it. So they right. kill everything and you don't get any bacteria from the food sources. Okay. So you're, if you're attempting to, to get the probiotics through your food, you don't want to go pasteurize. Good advice. So if you are taking probiotics as a supplement, should you be taking them with food or, or does it matter? Yeah, I recommend with food or right after a meal. So there's food in the tummy. Basically, the prebiotic fibers are there in the food. Most food has some kind of like prebiotic that these bacteria can ferment, digest. So that helps their survivability. The stomach acid also changes a little bit when you put food in. So when you're fasting, you're starving. It's like the the feeling of the stomach eating itself kind of thing. The acid's really, really high. Mm -hmm. So it's going to kill everything. And and that's what it's designed for. It's, It's designed to to kill the bacteria that you don't want to have invade. So it changes a little bit. It goes a little bit more alkaline, a little less acidic with food in the tummy. So the the probiotic will also have a little bit more chance there. And then enteric-coated, we'll we'll talk about after, I think. But the enteric-coated advantage is you can kind of pop that capsule anytime because it's acid-proof. Right. It uh, it just doesn't matter with food or without food. You can, it's helpful for people who forget. Right. Let's jump to that. So the enteric coating allows the probiotics to get through the stomach to the intestines where you want them. Isn't that pretty much it? Exactly. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a raincoat, a waterproof, uh, an acid proof coating passes through and opens up in a more alkaline, like small intestinal environment. And that's where you want the bacteria to come out live. 
So before you, you made a comment, you mentioned something called a human strain. So I understand there's, there's dairy strains and plant strains and human strains. Can you sort of sort out what the differences are? Yeah, it means where the bacteria were originated from, like where ah. they were first uh, taken from like a culture. So mm-hmm. plant strains are typically from plant sources. Dairy strains are from dairy and ferment dairy and human are from human digestive tracts. So you can think of where those come from. But yeah, to answer, like a lot of people are a bit scared of dairy strains if they have dairy issues. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say that it's mostly just the bacteria themselves. So the bacteria ferment dairy or they were sourced from dairy. So most people, if you're lactose intolerant, I wouldn't worry at all. If you have a severe milk allergy, then possibly you, you may want to go for a dairy-free strain. But I, I would say... Even somebody with like a, you know, a milk type allergy wouldn't really have any issues because there's not really any dairy there. It's just the bacteria that ferment dairy. That makes sense. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. No problem. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you again. You as well. So for more information about Krista, you can visit kristamckay.ca. And for more information about this talk show, you can always visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss longevity with Jerry Kroll on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Suffering with pain or arthritis? Having trouble sleeping due to stress and anxiety? Understand the benefits of medical cannabis science. Optican CB4 relief soft gels are formulated with patented Bezosorb pharmaceutical technology and are clinically proven to deliver four and a half times more CBD into your bloodstream three times faster than conventional CBD capsules. That's reliable relief in a nutshell and in an Optican soft gel. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist and sign up at opticanwith2ends.ca. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Jerry Kroll is the founder and CEO of Jevity Life Science. He aims to push the limits of improved human lifespan with the combination of knowledge and technology. He's also an avid marathon runner, having completed 40 marathons, including five Boston marathons. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? I am excellent, thanks. In beautiful, sunny Vancouver this morning. Really? I've been to Vancouver once, and it rained every single day. Yeah, well, we like to uh, push that uh, myth out there so that it doesn't get overcrowded. Okay, so it's not propaganda. We'll take you at your word. (laughs) So you have a passion for increasing human lifespan. That's why you're on the show today. We're going to talk about longevity. And where did this passion come from? It came from my youth. 
And for some weird reason, as a little boy, it confused me that in this world that we live in day to day, that people got old and died. It's it's a concept that I couldn't come to grips with. And as you get older and you get you know busy doing work and things like that, it sort of fades away. But I'm at the point in my life right now, at 61, where I'm going, you know, this, this really is something that can be cured, and we have the technology for that. So I'm reinvigorating my five-year-old self. That's noble. So, you know, the intro said you were a marathon runner. That's a tough gig. What made you choose that? There's a very good running group called uh, Running Room yep. right across Canada. Yep. I just had some friends say, hey, you should go in there because it's uh, pretty fun. I used to play a lot of squash. I thought I was fit. I went for a 10K jog with these guys and realized there's a different kind of cardio involved in running yeah. that affects your VO2 max directly. So I started working with these people going out for Wednesday night and Sunday morning runs, and it really did improve not just my cardio, but also my weight, my energy levels and things like that. And the people were so friendly that I started traveling with them to marathons literally all around North America. Okay, so when did you start running? Like, when did you start doing these marathons? 2002 is when I transitioned from squash and racquetball into running. And 2004 was uh, when I qualified for my first Boston Marathon. Wow. Okay. Comparing what you did when you first started training to what you're doing now, because you're older now, obviously... What are some of the things that have changed for you and what stays the same? Well, I have more time. I've uh, retired from the day-to-day grind and now a little bit more of a, a strategic executive where I can call my shots as to when I go to work or not. So I can train anytime I want in the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. That makes things a lot more convenient. I know how to run and I understand that cadence, having a, uh, a step uh, per minute of 180 or more, is the best way to ensure you don't injure your knees, your ankles, your hips, things like that. So I spend about 50% of my time making sure I don't get injured, whereas the younger me would have just gone pounding away with somebody and then twisted or pulled something and had to be out for two or three months. Yeah, so I used to run. So like one day a week, I'd do maybe a 12 or 13K run, and then other days I would do shorter runs until I messed up my ankle and I can't run anymore. So I do other stuff now. I still exercise because it's super important, but I found running for me helped me keep my weight off. And and the regular listeners know when I was 38, I lost 52 pounds. So for me, keeping the weight off was really important and running was key until it wasn't. So your point, you know, of avoiding injuries, I think is a very valid one. Yeah, and the enthusiasm of running and being with your your friends and colleagues like that, it also affects your your energy levels and how you eat. You tend not to go out for greasy, deep-fried foods if you're hanging out with a bunch of people who expect you to run a 10K under 45 minutes or a marathon under, under four hours. So it's the culture and the lifestyle of running, living healthy, and that's what transitions back into the idea of trying to live healthy and vibrant for 200 years or more. 200. Okay. 200. (laughs) Okay. All right. Are we going to start talking about telomeres today or do you think you can do it through diet and exercise? There's five levels of longevity. First one is not to do anything dumb like smoking or over drinking. The second is to do healthy things like running and eating well. Then we get into the third level, which is the science of uh, genetic stem cell therapies, which is being worked on right now. I'm going to say it. You've probably never heard it before, but a vaccine for aging is being worked on right now. The fourth level is to rewind your biological clock to factory settings when you were 22. Yeah. That's your healthiest. And the fifth and final level of longevity 
is an actuarial algorithm where you look at how you're living your lifestyle, making sure you're not doing anything subconsciously dangerous like motorcycle racing or skydiving, something that could end the life of your healthy 22-year-old self somewhere down the road. Well, I'm interested in, in point number four in particular because, you know, I say that at age 55, like the warranty's over, right? Like all the parts now become very expensive if they need replacing. So I'm very interested in that concept. Well, I'm here to offer you an extended warranty then. Can you? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That's the exciting part. And a lot of it has to do with things like stem cell, gene therapy, or even mRNA technology, where we can reprogram your liver to put fresh blood, your own blood, back into your veins and reinvigorate your entire body. And that's really what the initial target of uh, the Jevity Longevity Science is all about. Hmm. Are you talking about external blood filtration or something internal to the body? No, having your own liver reprogrammed to give your body what it needs to reinvigorate it. Your skin, your eyes, your hair, everything. Okay, well, that's interesting. With the running, so you're 61. Doesn't the running in and of itself sort of put stress on your body? I mean, that's what I was finding, right? Yeah, and that's a good thing. That's the use it or lose it thing. Yeah. So your, your knees... My guess is that you were probably a little bit less than 180 steps per minute as you're running. And if you have a longer stride, it's like having a longer span on a bridge, it's weaker. If you shorten that span, it inherently gets stronger. So if you have short, quick steps, there's no way that you can injure your ankles, your knees, your hips, or anything like that. It becomes more like dancing than loping along. So that's the part you get. And uh, the running, the, the stress part of it is good because if you don't give your lungs, your skin, everything a good workout, it's going to uh, atrophy. I mean, that's, that's basically what it is. So you do want to make sure that something called your VO2 max is as high as possible. That's your body's ability to absorb oxygen. If that's really low, you're in a danger zone. If it's high, you can survive infection or an injury or something like that a lot better. And that's what we focus on with the Jevity app. Did you ever get to the point with the running where you thought it was too much, it was too hard on your body and you had to stop? No, I give myself permission to stop whenever the heck I want. If I have a cold or I'm feeling tired, the most important thing for me is to be happy. And again, that's what uh, gets people out of bed and everything like that. If if I'm not uh, happy or excited to do something, I typically don't push myself to do it without a reason. But if I'm waking up to meet, you know, 10 of my favorite friends and go for a jog around Stanley Park, I'd be really miserable if I, for some reason, wasn't able to do that. That makes sense. You know, for me, running was something I felt I had to do. Like, I didn't enjoy it on that basis. There are other exercises that I actually, I don't mind as much. So maybe that's just it. Maybe running wasn't my thing because I didn't enjoy it as much as it sounds like you enjoy running. Yeah, and that goes to everything like, you know, family members who you invite over for Christmas dinner. It goes to your job. You know, if you're doing something that you hate just because you're making money, that's not going to be fun. But if you're doing the thing that really invigorates you, you'll never work a day in your life, is the old saying. And, you know, that goes for taking care of your body, too. Are you tech savvy when it comes to running? Like, are there devices that you use as aids in your running? All the time. And not just when I run, but uh, 24 hours a day. Aura Ring is a great device for measuring VO2 max, body temperature, heart rate, uh, heart rate variance, things like that. The Apple Watch is an incredible device to use. And then when I'm actually running, I'll wear a Garmin watch because it's very precise as far as cadence and things like that goes. But you want to pull all that stuff in together because if you have a hard run, 
and you notice that it's affecting your sleep because you've overworked yourself, mm-hmm. these devices these days can protect you from being overenthusiastic. By notifying you if your, your pace is too fast, for example, that sort of thing? Absolutely. You're wearing yourself out. You know, maybe you do 30 or 40 kilometers in a day or maybe, you know, 100 or 110 kilometers in a week. And you wake up and you look at your, uh, your device information from your Aura Ring or your Apple Watch and it says, hey, your heart rate variance is pretty low. You should actually take it easy for a couple of days. That's good advice coming to you from a body monitoring bit of technology. These are great devices that are going to become more and more prevalent in the months and years ahead. Everybody's going to be wearing them. And they're, quite frankly, excellent, including tracking your blood oxygen level very important things. I read an article that suggested that people that are actually self-motivated, right? The people that, so for example, you, you enjoy running are probably, that technology is the least useful because you're already sort of thinking about all these issues to begin with. Do you find that's the case? And, And as you continue to run, is the technology aiding you as you get older? It sure is. No matter who you are, you know, there's always the chance that you're doing something wrong or maybe you caught a cold or whatever. And if you're going out for a run because you've scheduled it, and you're not listening to your body, that's when injuries or or illness can happen. So these devices are for everybody. And a lot of the companies producing these devices are investing tens of billions of dollars to improve them, to make them easier to use and to make them more relevant, not just for you, but your trainers and your doctors to look at as well. And the best thing to do is to start now so you can accumulate that data so that 10 or 20 years from now, your doctor can look back at where you were and see any trends that have been happening. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, that data is gold in later life. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. For more information about Jerry Kroll, please visit Jevity, that's with two T's, dot com. For more information about this show, visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Suffering with pain or arthritis? Having trouble sleeping due to stress and anxiety? Understand the benefits of medical cannabis science. Opticant CB4 relief soft gels are formulated with patented Bezosort pharmaceutical technology and are clinically proven to deliver four and a half times more CBD into your bloodstream three times faster than conventional CBD capsules. That's reliable relief in a nutshell and in an Opticant soft gel. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist and sign up at opticantwith2ends.ca. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. My next guest, Shauna Linzen, is a dietitian and nutritionist. She's a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network and enjoys seeing clients virtually and doing corporate wellness lectures. She runs practical cooking demonstrations that combine scientific knowledge with culinary education. Her demonstrations are unique, informative, delicious, and a lot of fun. And you can find a list of her nutrition classes and recipes at shaunalinzen.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you? 
I'm great, Jamie. How are you? I'm doing great. So you are a professional, yes. and people come to you for your professional advice, and you've been educated and practice in the field. And you know, sometimes with health and wellness practice, there's a whole separate language that exists, right? Yes. And although you know there's trade secrets, we also want to make what we do accessible, right? Exactly. So let's talk a bit about the lingo, the argot, as it will, that pertains to diet and nutrition. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And in the nutrition world, there's a word that people tend to use quite often, and the word is clean, like clean eating. Yeah. And some nutrition professionals are really opposed to that word because food isn't dirty. So you don't want to differentiate between clean food and dirty food. Right. Okay. So, and clean was a word that a lot of companies were using for marketing, right? Like, in, yeah. and, and it describes a lot of diets, you know, like clean eating diets. You know, frequently you'll hear vegan, vegetarian diets or even gluten-free diets being described as clean. You know, it's a loaded word, right? Because clean means something to one person and something to somebody else, right? Exactly. And I think people do like the word clean because it's like spring cleaning, right? Like you're cleaning up your lifestyle. You're cleaning up your diet. But it has another side to it. Like you said, if you're different diet types, like if I'm clean eating, I'm not eating things like gluten or meat or yeah. dairy. So it's often exclusive. Like it, it yeah. excludes food. Yeah, it's exclusionary, right? Yes. Like, like you're, when you're talking about clean, it's like the notion is whatever you are taking out of your diet is, is bad and dirty and, bad. and poopy. And I think obviously if you have food out, like so for a true celiac, who has a true allergy to gluten, you know, excluding gluten is a life or or death situation. But for those who aren't celiac, it really isn't. Yeah. And it doesn't make you dirty, right? right? Like if you're not eating gluten. So you have to be really careful with the word because you don't want to become too obsessive. Or moralistic, right? Or moralistic, exactly. I, I mean, obviously people make decisions to go uh, vegan for philosophical reasons. And, I, you know, that's fine. I applaud that. But when you start attaching words like, you know, I'm eating clean, I'm not eating any meats or dairy. Well, okay, that's your opinion, uh, you know, and you're doing it for your reasons. But I still like a piece of cheese and I like a good steak and I'm not eating dirty. I'm just eating food. And it often imposes guilt. Yeah, no, right? exactly. It's a moralistic it's phrase. It's moralistic. And you don't want to feel guilty because all food is good food, right? Except for Doritos, sorry. No, I... <laughs> Except for Doritos. But it's, which are delicious. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's really actually labeling food, which imposes guilt. And it's a scary thing, especially for different age groups and yeah. people who are prone to a obsessive-compulsive disorder, that type of thing. Okay, so I'm going to throw another word out there, and I actually don't know what the meaning is, so I'll be educated. What is orthorexia? Okay, so most people know what anorexia is. Orthorexia, this term was coined in 1998, it's a type of behavior where you become compulsive 
in regards to food. So you compulsively check ingredient lists and nutrition labels. You cut out food groups. You spend hours during the day obsessing about food, not thinking about food like me and you, but obsessing about food. Mm -hmm. And you become distressed. Like if food isn't available or if you're going out. And it's it's almost like a preoccupation with eating very healthy. Right. Okay. So how does it manifest? Is it the person who refuses to go to the dinner party unless you serve them boiled rice and plain chicken because that's all they can have? Is it that sort of thing? Or? Yeah, it's that sort of thing. And it, and it manifests in different ways for different people. And interestingly enough, it could happen if you're really little, like a, a toddler up until if you're well into your 80s or 90s, like an obsessive compulsive trait. And lots of people have it. And it's it's almost like um, you can have traits of it yeah. or you can go really overboard with it. So clinically, if you feel like you have something like this, it's good to seek help, like with a psychologist or someone trained in disordered eating because it is a form of disordered eating. Do you see it professionally? Like, Do you see people coming to your office with this? All the time. I really do. So how do you know, like in your mind, when is it too much? Usually when people become almost, you can see that they're trying every diet in the book and they're excluding things. And for me as a professional, my radar goes up if they're excluding different like whole food groups. And I'm not talking like vegan or vegetarian. I'm talking really, really specifically worried about eating certain things. So like the FODMAP diet, that kind of thing? Not really, because okay. with the FODMAP diet, it's more like allergies, and, right. or not allergies, but intolerances, yeah. and you want to see what's actually bothering you. This is more fear of food. Got it. Okay. So if you see someone who obsessively reads labels and worries about what's in food, like to the point where they can't enjoy their life, and they're worrying about it way too much, that's what orthorexia is. And it's a compulsion. Okay. The pandemic has changed our lives in so many different ways, the way we conduct ourselves. Are you noticing that people are approaching their food and diets differently through the pandemic? I am. And I think it's because, like, some people were going into the office, you know, they would, like, drive downtown, go into the office, and eat lunch outside of their home. And then maybe even dinner, maybe even breakfast. So their meals outside of the home. Now people are either staying at home and they're more sedentary and they don't need as many calories. Like it's, it's really, really changed for, I would say, everybody in terms of their eating habits. And people become either kind of tighter in that regard or looser in that regard. I have seen both sides of the coin. I would imagine there's a lot more emotional eating, right? Like people are stressed out. A lot more. And you know how they're saying now, like the COVID-15, (laughs) that type of thing. And I see both sides, though. I do see people who have more time at home to exercise because their commute time is down. Yep. So I do see that people are concentrating more on their health, and I do see people that aren't concentrating on their health. So I see both sides of the coin here. You know, I worked remotely even before the pandemic, and it afforded me the opportunity to spend more time cooking my meals. And anytime you have more time to do that, 
I think it's an opportunity to eat more nutritiously, right? Exactly. The one difficulty in eating well is that it's time consuming. And so I would think the pandemic has really opened up an opportunity for people basically to hone their cooking skills, but also to spend a little more time with it. And so, you know, potentially eat more healthy. I, I, I suppose there there might be a silver lining there. I don't know. Yeah. And I think people who are prone to OCD. Yeah. Unfortunately, it could go the other way. Yeah, I hear you. All right. So the other thing about COVID is, you know, we have more time, you know, on the Internet because we're not going out. And that means we're spending more time pouring over information and perhaps doing our own research, which is a good thing. But, you know, I think people are having difficulty sifting through facts and fiction online. Can you help us with some of the, the red flags that you're aware of when you're looking for nutrition information online? Absolutely. So if you think about it, you're looking and there's so much information out there. The first thing you want to do is you want to see where the information's coming from, like right. who is, you know, spouting out the information. So words that you want to avoid, you know, if, if you see something that's a quick fix or a detox or purify or a cure, cleansing, miracle, like magic, all of those words should be red flags. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people out there trying to sell all of that stuff, and it could be harmful to people, especially people who are prone to orthorexia, for instance. So you have to really watch out for those red flags. Or easy solutions, right? Like, you know, if you've you've put on the COVID-15 and you're looking for a quick fix, well, wouldn't you buy a product that's saying, you know, lose weight instantly? Miracle Plant helps you shed the pounds. Oh, okay. Exactly. Yeah. Long-term lifestyle changes are always the way to go. And it's a difficult world out there, especially when it comes to dieting, because there isn't a quick fix, but we're still looking for one, right? Absolutely. So definitely, like, talk to a registered dietitian or someone versed in nutrition. Great idea. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me, Jamie. Take care. That was Shauna Lindzen. For more information about Shauna, visit shaunalindzen.com. For more information about Tonic Magazine and the Tonic Talk Show and all things Tonic, go to thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Ever wonder if your probiotics are really working for you? To get their full benefits, probiotics must survive harsh stomach acid and get into your intestines alive. Clinical studies prove that enteric coating guarantees safe intestinal delivery of live, active probiotic cells. New Roots Herbal offers a range of GPS enteric-coated probiotics formulated to meet your specific needs. Available exclusively at fine health food stores, find them in the refrigerated section. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Julianne Hale is the Vice President of Growth at Halio Clinic. As a Canadian health and technology executive, 
He has held various positions with large organizations and fast-growing startups. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? I'm very good. How are you today? I'm doing great. So National Mental Health Week is upon us, and we all know that sleep is important, but is there a connection between sleep and mental health? So there's absolutely a connection between good sleep and and mental health. Uh, There's actually a connection between sleep and physical and mental health. If we stick to mental health for a minute here, we've all had a bad night of sleep and we all have seen the impact on our mood the next day. So that's the quick effect. But if we look in the long term, then there's an effect on anxiety, on depression. There's a bi-directional relationship between your sleep and your, your mental health. Yeah. And on this show, we often talk about the interconnectedness of everything. So like your first comment that it affects your physical health, you know, that's also part and parcel of affecting your anxieties and your mental health too, right? Because if you're not feeling physically right by not getting rejuvenated through sleep, that's also going to impact your emotions too, right? Absolutely. It's, it's a state of mind. I mean, if you've got a good night of sleep, you'll be feeling well, feeling energized. So to your point, like if I'm feeling well, if I'm energized, if I've got a good level of energy physically, then I'll be in a good state of mind. And that's where that's on a day-to-day. But when, when your sleep is not as good, and it's the opposite. And that's where when things start building up and you're lacking sleep, there's what we call readiness. So readiness is kind of how you're building up your sleep, your sleep bank or your, your sleep elastic. And so when your readiness is starting to go low, that's where both from a physical standpoint, but also from a mental standpoint, you're putting yourself at risk, at risk from a health perspective. Right. And, you know, I, I don't think people sort of recognize the cumulative effect of good sleep or a lack of sleep, right? Like it isn't isolated to one night. Like if, if, if you are problematically not sleeping well over an extended period, it is definitely going to impact you and it, and it would take a while to get it back, right? Absolutely. Um, I, I was sitting on one of our webinar with some of our clinical experts this week. Uh, we often use the example of the elastic. So your, your sleep is kind of an elastic. So every day you're kind of stretching the elastic and then you go back to bed, and then the elastic goes back to its normal place, and then you stretch it again. I don't need to explain what happens if you just keep on stretching on the elastic. At some point, the elastic breaks. It's exactly the concept of, of your sleep and, and how it's important to keep that and, and kind of rejuvenate yourself every day to make sure that you're essentially always on top of everything and you're not accumulating uh, some anxiety, some depressive symptoms, or just some poor sleep. Okay, so knowing that sleep is important, when you're not getting sleep, that in and of itself can cause anxiety. So it's like a chicken and the egg thing. Is our anxiety feeding our poor sleep, or is our poor sleep feeding our anxiety, or is there another truth? Well, so it really depends. For some people, when they start losing sleep, they'll start getting anxious. For some other people, when they start getting anxious, they're having a hard time going to bed. Yeah. I mentioned the bidirectional effect earlier. So it's what we call the vicious circle of poor sleep. So the less you sleep, the more you think, the more you're anxious. The more you're anxious, the less you sleep. And that's where when you have a good uh, control over your sleep, you're able to kind of break that vicious cycle. And that's where... No matter which one came first, if you are able to control your sleep and have good sleep, you'll be in a better place to kind of cope with everything that's going on. I often say, if the reason you're not sleeping and the reason you're anxious is you're having difficulties with your relationship, with your job, looking at your sleep will not fix your relationship or your job, but it's going to make it easier for you to cope with that reality 
and essentially stay on top of things. And that's how you're going to get through in a more easier way. Okay. So you mentioned relationships and, you know, I think there's like the elephant in the room, which was impacting everybody's relationships in the last little while. Not of course was COVID and all the resultant stress and, and, and shutdowns. What were you seeing at your end? Well, so the pandemic has brought a load of different things. One thing that's for some obvious or for some we've overlooked it is that we've, we've all started to work from home. So a lot of people were pre-pandemic getting up earlier to get ready to go to the office. And now people can get ready in 20 minutes and show up on Zoom or on Teams on video conferencing and be ready. So people have shifted their sleep cycles. Uh, what we've seen in clinic, so we collect a lot of data from the patients that come in the clinic. And what we've seen is that there's actually a shift of a full hour. Like people are actually going to bed an hour later and getting up an hour later in the morning. Now, what's that? What that's created is that now that we're for most of, for the most part we're going in, into some sort of a hybrid mode. Now it's creating this anxiety situation again, where people are kind of in a mood of I'm I'm used to getting going to bed later. Now there's two days a week where my employer is expecting me to show up in the office, so I've got to play and shift that around. So there's been that effect. The other effect is that. A lot of people working from home have actually set up an office in their bedroom. And that's one of the number one things our experts, our clinicians will uh, forbid is, is your bedroom should be a place for your sleep and your, your brain actually makes connection. When you're getting in your bedroom, your brain is making connection between your bedroom and it's time to go to sleep. So if you're doing anything else in your bedroom, then that's kind of conflicting in your brain and, and, and the trigger signal that you're sending to your brain in, in terms of going to sleep. So that's also created some difficulties. And then we've all seen the uncertainty. So that's where it's more from an anxiety perspective. Yeah. But that's where, again, a chicken in the egg. So uh, some people have lost their jobs. Some people have, have been afraid of losing their job. Some companies have shut down. Restaurants have shut down. We've all kind of been under a lot of stress as well. More people at home, closer in our relationships, all things we're not used to. And so that's created a lot of conflicts from anxiety, depression as well. So overall, it's been really triggering a lot of sleep difficulties. Okay, so now we've identified some of the problems, but you're the expert here. So at your clinic, how are you helping people with their sleep? So we've actually created a solution that's quite unique. So we, we took something that was, it's been available for decades. So, uh, and that's called cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, now, sometimes the word therapy is scaring people away. See it as a sleep coaching uh, with a true um, healthcare professional that's trained in sleep. And so that process has been around for decades. It's available in hospital. It's recommended by doctors, but it's really hard to access. There's very few people that offer the treatment. The hospital that do offer the treatment, they're uh, backed up with 18 to 24 months wait list, depending on where you are. So what we've done is we've taken that process and we've packaged it in a five weeks long program where you're doing this from the comfort of your home or your office using our mobile app. Um, and where this is different from everything else on the market is that you're still meeting, quote unquote, face to face with, with a healthcare professional through video conferencing. So it's true coaching or true therapy with a healthcare professional. Um, and the best of all, of all of this is that it's typically available in two formats. One format is provided by your employer. So we work with employers who care about their employer employee sleep quality. And the other format is as an individual, you can walk in. And if you walk in as an individual, then it's a program that's covered by most group insurance because we're using trained psychologists to deliver these programs. 
So it's, it's really easy to access, uh, and it's highly effective. So we essentially took something that was proven but unaccessible and made it uh, accessible. So uh, you mentioned before about sort of em- employers and their connection to the employees and their, I guess their mental health and, and sleep patterns. You know, do you really think there's a role there for employers to play, or is this more of a personal issue for individuals? Well, so it depends on which, which angle you look at it. If you look at it from a wellness perspective, then some employers will decide that they offer more support to their employees than others, uh, and we could debate whether, you know, do they want to support them with good sleep or support them with something else. From, uh, from a productivity perspective, now the employer has a vetted interest to make sure that their employees are sleeping well. There's a ton of research, a ton of literature out there, actually even like industry-specific literature that's showing that if someone is not sleeping well, you're going to have um, less productivity, higher absenteeism, higher risk of disability, higher risk of mental health issues, which can lead to some other situations in the workplace. There's higher replacement costs. Uh, There's a lot of costs that are directly related to poor sleep. And the way that we've actually built our program for employers, we're actually able to measure that. So we're, we're able to make it real for the employer and show, you know, 25 of your people came in the clinic. Here's how much these people were costing you, whether it's in disability and productivity and so on. So that's where the reason for us to work with employers is we know there's a lot of education to do here on sleep. Most people know it's, it's important to sleep well, um, but there's a lot of skepticism. You know, we, we see people that say, you know, I'm a police officer. I haven't been sleeping for 5, 10, 15 years. It's part of my role. It's part of my job not to sleep. You know, like, how, how are you going to make me sleep better in just five weeks? You know, they're skeptical. But when it's offered by their employer, they think, all right, I'll try it. What, what have I got to lose? And that's where we found this uh, equilibrium that allows us to offer this to more people. Okay. We have time for one last area, and that is, you know, how do you know if you have a sleep quality issue? And is there a way to sort of look at it yourself? Absolutely. So a lot of people think insomnia means never sleeping. So having, you know, not sleeping at all. Mm-hmm. The reality is there's a few different ways that insomnia will show up in your life. They're not all as obvious as not sleeping or having a hard time falling asleep. So the key thing is to evaluate your sleep. There's actually questionnaire uh, available online. We actually have one. If you go on our website, alioclinic.com, there's a free questionnaire. It takes about five minutes. And it's a clinically validated questionnaire that's going to tell you whether you've got risk of sleep disorders, not just insomnia, but it's, it's kind of a, a good check. Check with your health to see, is my sleep good? Is, could my sleep get better? And that's the first place to start to evaluate that. And it's essentially going to tell you, can your sleep improve or not? And if so, which way can you improve your sleep? There's different programs tailored to different people. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. For more information about Julianne and Halio Clinic, visit halioclinic.com. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Krista McKay, MD, Jerry Kroll, Shauna Lindzen, and Julianne Hale. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic Magazine. The May-June issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or 
you can visit our new website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.